The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke This is a Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Please visit calcedon.edu to download this and many other articles by Rusus John Rushdie. Greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. My name is Shelby Luke, and I will be reading from Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushdie. The Trouble with Social Security, Calcedon Position Paper, Number 25. The Social Security system can be criticized on both economic and moral grounds. Economically, The system is cruelly unfair. Thus, if a man pays in $75,000 to Social Security between the ages of 18 and 65, the likelihood of getting his money back is poor. His life expectancy after 65 makes it unlikely that he will get back all or half the amount he paid in for 47 years. If he dies, his widow's benefits again are too small to add up to any significant return on his, quote, investment, unquote. The combined amount paid in by the employer and employee adds up to a very considerable sum, and the returns on it are small. The only real gainer from Social Security is the federal government. In 1969, Edward J. Van Allen, in The Trouble with Social Security, pointed out that a young worker who began paying into Social Security at age 18 and retired at 65 would have to live to be 111 years old to break even. If any insurance company or pension plan gave as poor returns or misused funds as does Social Security, the managers thereof would quickly find themselves in prison. The Social Security system, according to the federal courts, is not an insurance or pension plan, but a tax. It gives us no claims nor rights. Congress can alter the benefits at will, or cut us out of them, and, for some, this has happened. Moreover, because the federal government uses the funds as they come in, instead of saving them, we must pay interest in the form of extra taxes on the federal bonds which have replaced our payments. 
Moreover, the Social Security system promotes insecurity. It limits our ability to save. It prevents us from investing in sound pension plans, and it fuels inflation. If, instead of a federally operated system, the law required free market insurance and pension plans to provide the benefits, we would then have a sound and stable system. There is, however, another aspect to Social Security, the moral and religious factor. A simple historical fact tells us much at this point. Some years after the War of Independence, the U.S. Congress passed a pension plan for all veterans of that war. All veterans desiring a pension were to apply at designated places, submit evidence of their military status, and dictate to a court clerk their memories of the war. Those brief memoirs gave us sometimes vivid glimpses of George Washington, Putnam, and other leaders of that era. The stories, however, came as a shock to any Christian reader. Were there no Christians in the Continental Army? Almost uniformly, the veterans showed no interest in the faith or the church in their mature years. The answer to that question is a very simple one. No Christian veteran applied for a federal pension, and the churches were united in their opposition to any such application. They believed that Christian participation in a state or federal pension plan was morally wrong. They based their stand on many texts in Scripture, from the Old Testament and the New, and they saw their position as summed up and required by 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, quote, But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel, unquote. From the days of the early church until this century, and definitely through the first half of the last, Christians saw this as a binding duty and law. For them, it meant, first, that every Christian has a duty before God to care for his own family, especially those in his own household or under his roof. This did not apply to those who, like the prodigal son, had denied the faith and separated themselves. The family is more than a blood institution in Scripture. It is a faith bond, indeed, where a son is an incorrigible and habitual delinquent. The family must witness for the faith and against the son by denouncing him to the authorities. Deuteronomy 21, 18-21 On the other hand, all believing members must be cared for. Our Lord denounces all who refuse to provide for their parents and felt that the money for parental support could be better used by the temple or God's ministry. He equates this with cursing one's parents, which the law says requires the death penalty. Mark 7, 9-13 Very clearly, failure to provide for one's needy kin is a fearful offense in the sight of God. The social security system is a welcome fact for all such sinners, who are readier to see this tax increase than to care for their parents. Second, the quote family, unquote, of which Paul speaks in 1 Timothy 5, 8, includes our fellow believers. Very early, following Old Testament practices, the disciples took steps to provide for the needy widows and other like persons in the church. In Acts 6, 1-3, we do not have the institution of such a practice. It was already a, quote, daily ministration, unquote. 
Rather, what we have is the organization of a diaconate to provide an efficient and well-organized ministry in this area. The work of the early church in this area was remarkable. No charity beyond one day was given to able-bodied men, but work was found for them, or work was made for them on subsistence wages. Indeed, one of the telling, quote, advertisements, unquote, for the early church throughout the Roman Empire was their care one for another. Hence the saying, quote, Behold, how these Christians love one another, unquote. To be a Christian meant to be a responsible person and a member of a larger family. This is one aspect of what Paul means when he says, quote, We are members one of another, unquote. Ephesians 4.25 It was not a light thing to be a Christian. It meant joining, or rather being adopted into, the family of Jesus Christ as a working, obedient, and responsible member. We cannot appreciate the significance of all this unless we realize that the New Testament was written and the early church lived in the context of the Roman Empire. Until our time, Rome provided the world's most massive social security and welfare system in history. It was, quote, bread and circuses, unquote. In example, food, housing, and entertainment. As in our day, the state was seen as God walking on earth, the source of providence and providing. Rome resented the Christian insistence that Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord, and the Christians care one for another. Such care meant that the government of another ruler than Caesar was determining the lives of man, and that a God other than Caesar was the provider. Third, the early church was mindful of the poor outside the fold. As early as in the days of the twelve disciples, there was a treasury for the care of such poor. We have a reference to this in John 12, 1-6, and to the fact that this fund was in Judas's care, and he was a thief. What people have not bothered to note is that funds were obviously being given to our Lord, in example, tithes and offerings. These were apparently a portion for various purposes, the care of our Lord's ministry and its expenses, perhaps the support of the disciples' families at home, as well as the poor. There were thus perhaps several treasurers, one for each cause. We do know that one of the great conflicts of the early church with Rome was over abortion. Not only did the church strongly oppose abortion, but it did more. Abortion was then crude and primitive and not always successful. Unwanted babies were then abandoned, in Rome itself under the bridges where wild dogs consumed them. Christians quickly began to collect all such abandoned newborn babies and then pass them around to member families. This added to the rapid growth of the Christian population. It also embarrassed Romans, who spread stories saying that the babies were collected to be eaten in the communion services and their blood drunk. Much more can be said. Hospitals began as an outgrowth of the Christian ministry, and until fairly recent generations, all hospitals were Christian. Schooling goes back to the Levite schools, Deuteronomy 33:10, and statist education is a recent, humanistic, and socialistic step. 
All welfare was once Christian, and so on and on. The Bible provides for the world's only sound social security system, spiritually and materially, and Christians once applied it. It begins with salvation, and it continues with being members one of another. The Lord requires it of us. Social insecurity. One of the ironies of history is the fact that every age which has sought social security has produced instead dramatic insecurity. This is not to say that security is not an important and worthy consideration. To live securely in one's home, to be in safety on the streets, to have protection from assault and theft, and to have a stable monetary and economic order is clearly a positive and obvious good. It is an aspect of the Messiah's world peace that men convert their weapons into productive tools and live peacefully. Quote, Every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. Unquote. Micah 4, 3, and 4. The desire for security is a religious and a godly goal. To condemn it is clearly wrong. The trouble begins when security is detached from its moral and religious context. When we regard security as a product of man's order rather than God's order, we undercut the very foundations of security. I repeatedly have heard statements like this from people in very good housing as well as in, quote, depressed, unquote, areas. My neighbor's boys are on drugs and they act like animals. We are afraid to leave the house empty because they vandalize it. Because we have a status school system which denies God's word and law, we have produced a lawless generation and dramatic social insecurity. Not a few social security checks fall into the hands of these new vandals as they rob the elderly. The psalmist thus sees the essence of social security in godly faith and order. Unless the society is God's construction based on his law word, it is, quote, vain, unquote, or futile. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Psalms 127, 1 and 2. Our society is very insecure. Recently, a very liberal gun control man, after some serious episodes, bought handguns for himself and his wife. Such incidents are becoming commonplace. However, such a step gives only a limited, although real, protection. The society of our time is in decay. The lawlessness is increasing and countermeasures do not alter the developing anarchy around us. Moreover, most people, including churchmen, too commonly see the threat as from one direction only, an example from lawless peoples. The even greater threat is from Almighty God, from the triune God. It is His law which is broken, His word which is despised, His name which is blasphemed, and His person that is bypassed and neglected. Nothing can produce greater social insecurity than the judgment of God.
Unhappily, the very word security has been debased in our day by being given, in its primary sense, a limited meaning. It has come to mean, first, an insurance against economic hazards and dangers. Its meaning is in this sense, economic. The Social Security system, according to one definition, quote, conveys the assurance of freedom from the dangers of a penniless old age, unemployment without compensation, etc., unquote. Dictionary of Sociology. Second, security has come to mean also a psychological stability from fears and neuroses. The hunger for this psychological security has made various forms of psychotherapy one of the great growth, quote, industries, unquote, of the 20th century. The intense concern about both these forms of security witnesses to the intense insecurity of modern man. They also witness to his very limited view of security. God's promise to the faithful is very plain, quote, there shall no evil befall thee, unquote. Psalms 91.10 Note that the promise does not say, No trouble shall befall thee, but rather, No evil. There is a difference. In an age certainly not lacking in problems, Thomas Aquinas defines security as freedom from evil in this biblical sense. There is another meaning to security which seems, at first glance, peripheral, but is actually basic. Security in this sense is a deposit to secure the payment of a debt or the performance of a contract. In this sense, our security is a theological fact. The Lord God, having already given us His only begotten Son to effect our redemption at the price of His blood, finds it surely a small thing by comparison to care for us. He is, in every sense of the word, our security. In a fallen and sinful world, to expect the kind of security politicians too often promise is fallacious, illusory, and dangerous. It leads people to an avoidance of the basic source of insecurity, the sin of man. Man's depravity is the root of evils in every sphere, marital, political, economic, and so on. No political system can sidestep the implications of man's nature. Man's sin manifests itself in the family, in the spheres of capital and labor, in politics and education, as well as in open criminality. Man's nature is not changed by his choice of a profession or calling. Being a clergyman, politician, bureaucrat, capitalist, or union man sanctifies no one. Only God who made man can remake him. An age which looks to man's way rather than God's for the dynamics of social change can only increase its disorder and insecurity. October 1981 Wealth Chalcedon Position Paper Number 26 The modern attitude towards wealth is a most ambivalent one. Man's materialistic bent makes him desire wealth and hunger passionately for it. Modern advertising appeals to this lust for wealth, and much of current selling and buying is motivated by the urge to appear wealthy, while appearing unconcerned about wealth. 
To be wealthy is seen as a reproach by the very people who hunger for wealth. In their envy, they try to make wealth into the great sin of the times. Wealth is presented as the product of exploitation. It is depicted as evidence of unconcern for the poor and needy and as something to feel guilty about. Modern man has a love-hate relationship and attitude towards wealth. The matter is even more complex than that. The contemporary view of wealth has no awareness of the fact that wealth in different areas has meant different things. A man with many and godly children and grandchildren can and commonly has felt very rich, although having relatively little money. Moreover, money has not always been an evidence of wealth. More often, land has been the index of wealth and sometimes position. Then, too, people can sometimes be rich and feel poor. A few years ago, one of America's wealthiest women married one of America's wealthier men. Both had jealous regards for their money, and they agreed before their wedding to share equally all living costs. The marriage foundered because the bridegroom, worried about the high cost of honeymoons, tried to make his bride share the cost of their honeymoon, beginning with their first breakfast. Despite all his wealth, he was, in the true sense of the word, a very poor man. Mental and religious attitudes thus are thoroughly intertwined with our ideas of wealth. What we believe can make our wealth a blessing or a curse in our eyes and in the eyes of others. We can feel that wealth gives us a privilege and responsibility, or we can regard it as something to apologize for, as though we had some unfair advantage because of it. Wealth can be a blessing in a godly era, and a burden in an age of envy. It is important to recognize that the main word for wealth in the Hebrew, shayil, means strength. Another word means substance, another good. Still others mean power, things laid up, fullness, rest, prosperity. Clearly, the Bible does not see wealth as the problem, but the problem is what men do with it and what the possessors of wealth themselves are. At times, some very harsh things are said about rich men, but wealth itself is seen as a blessing. Deuteronomy 8, 18. It is trust in wealth which is strongly condemned. Psalms 49, 6-8. The love of wealth can lead men into grave injustices towards their poor covenant brothers. Isaiah 5, 8-10. It is not money, but, quote, the love of money, unquote, which Quote, is the root of all evil, unquote. 1 Timothy 6, 10. The idea of wealth has changed from age to age, and the concept of poverty also. Philippe Aries, in the hour of our death, Knopp, New York, 1981, for $20, notes that in the Middle Ages, wealth was not seen as the possession of things. Rather, it was identified with power over men whereas poverty was identified with solitude, page 136. Each concept of wealth creates its own culture and its own advantages and problems. Later, wealth was identified with cultivated lands and houses, and the wealthy families of Europe were not necessarily rich in money, but in land and in castles or 
manor houses. Whatever gold or silver they acquired went into furthering their landed wealth. This attitude carried over into colonial America and, as rapidly as possible, bullion wealth, gold, and silver, which was in excess of current needs, was turned into utensils. Much of Paul Revere's work in silver represented such assets, made for his contemporaries. In times of need, the silver teapots, trays, and other items were simply melted down into bullion for monetary use. The Industrial Revolution redefined wealth. Capital wealth was less and less land and houses and more and more the means of production. It meant mines, ships, railroads, looms and mills, and the like. The social standard was still the older one, and the new capitalists, as they grew wealthy, bought country estates and married their children to the older families in order to gain status. Wealthy Americans bought English estates in order to feel truly rich. In time, however, the older doctrine of wealth began to decline. Both wealth and power were now industrial in orientation, and the future was defined, not in terms of land and houses, but in terms of industrial production. Thus Henry Ford hated horses and worked to mechanize farming. He saw man's products as superior and promoted, quote, soybean milk, unquote, and synthetic foods, John Coat Dollinger and Francis Potts Layton. The Secret Life of Henry Ford, pages 170 through 177, Indianapolis, Indiana, Bob's and Merrill, 1978, for $10.95. As a part of the same temper for years, oleomargin was promoted as a better and healthier food than butter. At world fairs, the wonderful world of plastics was presented as a great hope for man and as the new road to cheap wealth for all. Manufactured products as the key to the popular wealth and the means of production as the instrument of great wealth played an important part in the development of the 20th century and its technology. Few doctrines of wealth have had a more revolutionary impact on the world. This new idea of wealth meant a more fluid and liquid conception of riches, and it moved quietly and steadily to another concept, one to which the market investor and speculator, while playing an important part in the development of industrial wealth, contributed greatly. The new wealth was monetary. It meant not simply the ownership of the means of production, but money, millions and even billions of dollars in money. The idea of money as wealth was being separated from the production which created it. Less and less in the popular imagination was the really rich man, the producer, and more and more the non-working investor and playboy. Since World War II, we have seen the rapid development of an anti-capitalist mentality. Ludwig von Mises has written with a special effectiveness about the implications of this phenomena in the anti-capitalist mentality, 1956. At the same time, an unprecedented number of people have become, quote, investors, unquote, in the stock market. Large numbers of these new, quote, investors, unquote, have a hostility to the free market and demand regulations of industry. They seem to regard the stock exchange as something like 
Las Vegas, and a slot machine, or, better, like a racetrack in horse betting. The idea of money has for many separated itself from the means of production. The consequences of this have been far-reaching. Wealth has come to mean money, not land, houses, and the means of production. The idea of wealth has become highly liquid, and the new money is equally liquid. It is fiat money, paper money. A society which separates wealth from the realities of land, houses, and the means of production on the one hand, and the capital of work and thrift on the other, will soon have a money which is inflated, because its idea of wealth is inflated. It has no substance. At the same time, the doctrine of wealth will shift from a production orientation to a consumer orientation. Service industries began to predominate over production industries. The social structure stresses wealth while producing less and less of it. At the same time, a change takes place in the uses of wealth. We have already noted the prevalence of the consumer mentality in an inflationary culture. There is, however, always another use of wealth for benevolence. Men in every age have in varying degrees shared their wealth with others. In particular, this has been a basic aspect of every culture which to any degree has been influenced by Christianity. Philanthropy becomes a major social force. The care of the poor, the sick, and the hungry was in the Middle Ages the function of Christian foundations. Monasteries provided for a variety of social needs, and whatever other criticisms were made of the church, a lack of charity was rarely charged or valid. However, charity, like wealth, can be variously defined and often has radically different motivations. Helmut Scheck, in Envy, 1966, has shown that, in many cultures, not only is envy the basis of law, but also of charity. To avoid the destructive forces of envy, the men who accumulate riches regularly divest themselves of all that they possess. Because, as Sheck demonstrates, quote, the envious man is, by definition, the negation of the basis of any society, unquote. Page 26. Quote, charity, unquote, in such a society is counterproductive and is socially destructive. Prince Kropotkin, in Mutual Aid, chose to see such, quote, charity, unquote, as evidence of a universal moral character in men, and in this he followed Darwin's suggestion in his Descent of Man. However, as Scheck shows, the desire for an equalitarian society comes from envy, not from any noble motive, and, as a result, the private and statist, quote, charity, unquote, created by envy, is socially ruinous. In Buddhism, charity has in large measure a contempt for life. A very popular tale among the Buddhist peasantry is that of King Siva, who gave away his eyes, and Vasantra, who gave away his kingdom, all his possessions, and even his wife and children. Many of the classic tales of Buddhist charity have a strongly suicidal character. This suicidal motive is an important fact. Whenever and wherever envy becomes a governing force in charitable giving, suicide becomes a ruling factor. 
In the United States, for example, many heirs to great fortunes are so heavily influenced by the politics of guilt, pity, and envy that their charities had a strongly suicidal element. Such persons seek to absolve themselves of guilt and to escape from envy by becoming advocates of radical politics and instruments of charities designed to allay envy. Such charities do not stifle envy, rather they feed and justify it. In this, there is a relationship to Hindu charity, which, as A.S. Geddon showed, has a religious motive, quote, the desire to secure personal advantages and reward in the future life, unquote. James Hastings, Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics, third volume, page 388. Not generosity, but a desire to escape from karma and the cycle of reincarnation governs such charity. The goal of society and of charity is thus not community and love, but an escape from this world. The rich give to expiate past sins and to improve their karma and their future reincarnations. The goal in these various forms of non-biblical charity is thus man-centered. Man seeks by his giving to gain a personal advantage, deliverance from guilt, social approval, a mitigation of karmic burdens, and an improvement of future lives, and so on. In other words, many of these charities are past-oriented, and others are death-oriented. In past-oriented charities, the donor is seeking to make atonement for past sins and guilt by himself or by his parents. The present world is essentially a place wherein atonement is made for the past. The inheritance of wealth is seen as a burden which must be expiated and justified by a course of guilt-governed charitable giving. Much of modern humanistic giving has such a motive. Great fortunes lead to great foundations, whose function is to rehabilitate a bad conscience or a, quote, bad name, unquote. The giving of such foundations is thus essentially on a false basis. Other charities are death-oriented. There is a link between wealth and death. The old saying has it that, quote, you can't take it with you, unquote. But death-oriented giving seeks to evade the force of that fact. Death-oriented charities seek to build up points for the afterlife, either by their effect on the afterlife or by their effect on one's name and reputation here on earth. In many cases, charities and foundations are both past-oriented and death-oriented. Biblical wealth and charity have as their focus the kingdom of God and His righteousness, Matthew six thirty-three. Both acquisition and dispersion are governed by God's law and justice. Their function is to capitalize the present and the future under God and to further covenant life. When a man gives to justify or to atone for his wealth, his giving is self-serving and counterproductive. When he acquires wealth and gives of it in terms of God's calling and kingdom, his activity furthers community. He then functions as a member of a covenant community, and his relationship to all who are outside the covenant 
is one of justice and mercy. In such a perspective, wealth is not seen as power over men, nor as lands and houses, however desirable, nor as the means of production, and certainly not as fiat money. What a man has is the blessing of the Lord and to be used in terms of God's law word. All that we are and have is of the providence of God to be used in terms of His calling, justice, and law. St. Paul states the matter simply and bluntly. Quote, For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? Unquote. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. The wealth we have received from God may be material or intellectual. It can be money, lands, graces, aptitudes, and callings. This wealth can be accompanied by money or come without it. In any and in every case, we all have a common obligation to use it to God's glory and purpose. Quote, the blessing of the Lord, it maketh rich, and he added no sorrow with it, unquote. Proverbs 10:22 Note that it is not money nor land that makes us rich in the biblical sense but quote the blessing of the Lord unquote. We cannot have that blessing or richness if we see only money as wealth nor if we are eaten by envy what we have we must give Our Lord is emphatic on this quote, freely ye have received freely give unquote. Matthew 10, 8. If not, we are very poor indeed, poor in our very being. Rich man or poor man, which are you? November 1981. Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he assures by his pain, the very prize. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me. Oh
embrace him and go. Oh, how precious Jesus is to us as the husband of the bride to be. Tell the world of his wrath, tell the world of his love, tell the world how Jesus Christ has set you free, set you free. He is the Lord of life to Tell the world.